Hey, welcome to the New Life Bible Fellowship Podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community that enjoys God and transforms the world through the gospel. We hope these weekly messages serve to inspire you, invite you to experience the greatness of God, and empower you to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. Thanks for joining us. Amen. God is good, yes? All the time. So before we turn to God's word, I want to pause to pray. Um, It seems in some ways like not a week goes by where this world does not have chaotic events fall upon us. And um, so in this last week, there's um, a stabbing inside a rabbi's home. There's a shooting inside a church. And this last week, an uh, embassy in Baghdad is burnt down by some radical Iranian Muslims. And then the U.S. responds, and um, Soleimani and five others are taken out in a missile explosion. And I, there, there's not a, an ounce of, of political commentary that I'm going to give to any of this. Um, but that last tension, it's, it's, it's beyond even just kind of world events. Um, it, it plays out with ripples going through all of the Middle East, certainly Israel, and it has a dynamic in which it is Christianity and Islam, and I want to pause and pray. Um, Without commentary in it all, uh, I, I don't have enough information to comment. But the ripples are pretty big, and I'd like to pause and pray, and then we'll turn to God's Word. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, this is a broken, crazy world. And we long for the day, King Jesus, where the skies split, and you descend to this earth, and you make all things right. Where there will be a balm of healing and of peace where every knee will bow to proclaim you, Jesus Christ, our King of kings and Lord of lords. In the midst of that, I pray for wisdom and peace amongst your people in this world. I think of first responders and all that goes along with um, this rabbi's home and his church and security teams and police officers, would you give them both strength and wisdom and compassion? In the midst of this, Lord, would you revive in all of us uh, just a sanctity for life? There's human lives that are lost in this. Would you help us value every human life on the face of this planet. I pray for wisdom specifically for our leaders in regard to Iran. Lord, guide us. Guide us for peace. Guide us for righteousness. 
Let us walk in humility and for your kingdom in this world. I long for a day when peace would ripple out from Jerusalem all through the Middle East to this whole world. We lay all that in your hands. You're the only one who can heal. And so we give that to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as we turn to God's Word, I'm going to reflect on a story I heard. And actually, I'm going to go over here and get my Bible. I forgot it there. Thank you. Um, but I'm going to reflect on a story I heard from Paul Tripp. So Paul Tripp is a, a pastor and an author. And he spoke uh, about two months ago at a gospel coalition thing. And as he did, he <laughs> told a story about his son. So it was a parenting story. And I was um, laughing and crying as I heard it. The context is that his son is coming to him for help with a homework assignment. He has a science project that is due the next morning. But it happens to be 10.30 at night on a Thursday. And his son approaches him. He's sitting on the couch, winding down on the day. And his son says, hey, Dad, I, I have a science project due tomorrow morning. Would you help me? And immediately, this urge rose up inside of him almost of how dare you. Like in my day, I would never have approached my dad to ask for help for a science project due the next morning at 10.30 at night. What, like, what, what are you thinking? He says, so, so what do you need? What do you need help with? And he said, well, I need some poster board. And he thought, well, like not the end of the world. We got plenty of cardboard around the house. There's boxes all over. Cut some up, use some tape, solve it yourself. Do you need anything else? And he said, well, I need markers. And uh, he was thankful for his wife. They had a whole supply of markers. And, and, and he said they, they believed, you know, as Christians, you have water-soluble markers. That's the way when they dry up, you just cut off the tips, pour water in, and you kind of get resurrected markers. You, you at least use them for something. He's like, so go find whatever's in the drawer, use it, fix it, solve it yourself. And then his son said, and um, I need, I need a dozen little chicken. He says, you, you need what? He said, I, I need a dozen little chickens. <laughs> and he said, you need a dozen little chickens? Like, obviously, look, you've had this homework assignment for 17 years. What, what, I, in my day, I wouldn't even have dared talk to my dad. Uh, on the night before, it's 10.30 at night, and you're coming to me asking for a dozen little chickens. See, no, that's not okay. And the problem with that conversation is it had no gospel. In my day, I wouldn't have asked my dad at 10.30 at night for help with homework, which communicates to any and every son, well, I know, Dad, I'll never be as righteous as you. I'll never be as good as you. I'm worthless, but would you somehow help me anyway? The conversation lacked gospel. Gospel. To have at the front of our minds the understanding and the knowledge that we utterly and desperately depend on the patience of God, on the mercy of God, 
on the forgiveness of God, on the love of God, that we do not deserve any of that. Not even 1% do we somehow earn. That all of that is freely given us only by grace because Jesus Christ came into this world, died in our place, paid our price, and has given us love and mercy and patience and compassion so that we have the love of God. If that is on the front of our mind, it transforms every conversation that we have. So we're starting this series, Everyday Gospel. And it has as a premise that if we have the gospel on the front of our minds, it changes our interactions in everyday life in everything. You're driving down the road and the lane next to you on the left is closed just up ahead. And the signs saying that it are closed Go way back so that everybody, you don't even need to read English. The arrows are clear. That lane is closed. But sure enough, sure enough, that car comes zippity-doo-dying down <laughs> all the way to the end and cuts in front of you or wants to. And the non-gospel response, the non-gospel response is I am the right driver, you are the wrong driver, and you will cut in, <laughs> cut in here over my dead body. <laughs> but the gospel response, this is very real. The gospel response is I depend on grace every moment in my life. If it weren't for the patience of God, I'd just be a pile of dust floating down to debris. I depend on the patience of God and the mercy of God and the love of God, and I don't deserve any of it. Not one ounce of it. But God is merciful to me. So come on in. And may the Lord show you compassion in this day. The gospel. It makes a difference in everything. There's a passage in 2 Corinthians that says this, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. The love of Christ controls us, compels us. The patience and the mercy and the forgiveness and the gentleness and the compassion of God. It controls our thoughts. It controls our attitudes. It controls our feelings. Everything about us hinges on this. It controls our life. Why? Because Jesus Christ came. And he, he not only died in my place, he died for me. He absorbed my sin into himself. He who knew no sin became sin. He took my sin into himself. And he took the wrath of God upon him. And it was wrath that I deserved. And so because of that, the gospel, the love of God controls everything I do. It controls who I am. So that's the premise of this series. And we're going to take a look at how the gospel affects marriage, how the gospel affects what it is to be a man and a woman, a husband, a wife, what it is to 
affect being single, what it is to, to affect how we spend money. We're going to take a look at very practical ways in which our lives are controlled by the gospel if we will surrender there. Now, specifically this morning, we're going to consider the template of the gospel in this world. The template of the gospel in this world is marriage. We might not think of it that way that often, but the template of the gospel is marriage. And not only marriage, but specifically in this, this is going to be tough because we live in a confused world. But in marriage, even the roles that God has for husband and wife. We, I hesitate to use the word gender. I, I would say gender and gender roles, but in today's world, I'm not really even sure you can say gender because you say gender, and what does gender mean? And we live in a gender-confused world and in a world that is confused about gender roles. But we, we can't start down a track, at least in the book of Ephesians, to understand how the gospel is a part of everyday life without considering the template. The template is actually marriage and some roles for males and females. Now, this applies to every single one of us. For not only do we interact with marriage, whether we are married or not, but in addition to that, every person in this room has the opportunity in Christ to be a part of his body, one flesh with him, united in marriage, the bride of Christ, and him, the groom, heading towards, in the book of Revelation, a grand wedding feast. So it really applies to all of us. So we're going to walk through Ephesians and and unpack the truths as we come upon them. So we're going to start in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Paul's talking about the gospel. He's talking about living a gospel-filled life. And he says this, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. In other words, if we're going to talk about having a gospel-filled life, if we're going to have the gospel control us, if we're going to understand what that is, we've got to have the Holy Spirit inside of us. Paul says you can't tackle this on your own. You have to have the presence of God, the supernatural power of God, the Holy Spirit of God flowing through your veins. If you are going to treat people the way they ought to be treated, if you're going to walk in this world with the gospel, You've got to have the Holy Spirit in you. So he says, don't get drunk on wine. Get drunk on the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he uses five participles to say, people who are filled with the Holy Spirit do these five things, and people who do these five things are filled with the Holy Spirit. And so it's addressing and singing and making melody, giving thanks and submitting. So addressing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord in our heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father. And the last one, submitting. Now Paul stops on submitting. He dwells on submitting. In fact, verse 21 says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And that word submitting is going to pose the direction of the gospel and the rest of the the book of Ephesians, to to explain what submitting looks like. 
mutual submission. I just want to briefly mention submission. Sometimes I think we misunderstand submission. I get people who say to me, I would submit to my husband if he were different. I would submit to my wife if she were different. I would submit, but pastor, you have no idea who they are. Let's let's get the ground rules out on the definition of submission. Submission by definition is not submitting to things we agree with. So if someone says, hey, I want to take you out and buy you an ice cream sundae, and you say, oh, I'll submit to that. I like ice cream sundaes. That's not submission. That is simply agreeing with what you agree with. Submission in its very definition involves humbling yourself, dying to yourself, setting aside your preferences, submitting to another human being's preferences, and counting them more important than yourself. That We walk through this some with Christmas. It's what humility is. So Paul's talking about mutually submitting to each other. And from there, he begins to to display what this mutual submission looks like by talking about wives and husbands. And so into verse 22, he talks about wives first, so we shall as well. Verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, a, 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 a couple of disclosures here. Um, submission is a tricky word, and this can be a tricky passage. I, I've been involved in a little over 200, maybe 220 weddings in my pastoral track of life. I don't know that I've ever been involved in a wedding in which I did not read some of this passage. It's that foundational. I remember reading that verse once in a wedding where some high school friends of mine were at the wedding. And after, one of my high school friends came up to me and said, that was such a beautiful wedding. I just have one question. What in the bleep was the word submit doing in there? What I want to promise you is that when we talk about role distinctions and submission, I'm not talking about uh, some kind of superiority of males. Please, 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 please hear me. Um, I don't believe it. In fact, if we want to talk just basic intelligence and superiority and you're about to pick teams and you look at my house, I'll just tell you, pick the gals. We're not talking about giftings. We're not talking about worth. We're not talking about value. I'm not talking about guys in any way. So so wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Let me promise you that I will never look at you and say that you need to submit to your husband because he's like Jesus. I'm a husband. I know. I'm not like Jesus. Jesus, way beyond what I can reach. Me, way lower than I can scoot. I'm not going to say that man is like God and there's some kind of submission to him in that. Nor am I going to say we need to go back 
back to the past. The role distinctions in scripture are not the 1940s America where manhood was defined by some kind of domineering machismo and womanhood is defined as some kind of diminishing of gifts and second-classness. I wouldn't go there. But there is some kind of beauty here, and submission is mutual. But wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church. There is some kind of nurturing role here in which wives are to come alongside husbands and make them feel more significant, make them feel more important, nurture them, lift them up. Now, the submission is mutual. Husbands, verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So anyone who has ever said to me, well, I, I, I'd love my wife, but you don't know who my wife is. Like, really? The standard here is really clear. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In other words, the best picture of love of a husband biblically, I would say one, it would be the cross, and two would be washing the disciples' feet. It is servanthood that is sacrificial in nature. If you really want to walk through the passage, the passage is saying, find a day, husbands, when your wife spits in your face and mocks you and taunts you and calls you names. Add a little physical nature to it. Have her just slap you across the face a handful of times and push a crown of thorns on your head. In that moment, on that day, Love her at your absolute deepest, most sacrificial way. Die to yourself and uphold her. Hold her. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Husbands, love your wives. We'll come back to these. Then Paul's going to go into the great because, the great reason behind this the foundational piece underneath by which husbands are to love wives and wives are to love husbands by which mutual submission occurs in the home. Verse 29 and 30. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. So he's saying, here's, here's the grand mystery. When a husband and wife get married, they become one flesh. They're no longer two but one. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder, two becoming one. And no one ever hated themselves. So you, you, you are called to submit to each other and love each other and uphold each other because you are one body. You are one flesh. You are one flesh. Now in this one flesh picture, he begins to peel back some of the mystery already by indicating this has something to do with Christ. For Christ came to save his people, his bride. And anyone who is in Christ is a part of his body. They are one flesh 
with Jesus. And they become his bride. And he is the groom. So we can, we can learn in this template. The verse 29 and 30 that I just read, I'm going to read it in the New King James. Now there's a textual variant in the King James and New King James uh, has a little extra. And I, I just want to read that. In the New King James it says, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body. And this is what it's the textual variant that's extra. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Husband and wife become one flesh. Jesus becomes one flesh, one body with his people as they become his body and as he becomes the groom and they become the bride. So stay with me here. From here, Paul's going to go on, and he's actually going to quote a passage from Genesis chapter 2. So he goes on in verse 31, he says, therefore. All right, so we got the foundation, all right, so this is the outcome. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become... There we go. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become... One flesh, one flesh, one body, one body. So stay with me here. What I want to do is go back and read Genesis. It'll give us some insight to come back and read in Ephesians. So he's quoting Genesis chapter 2. We're going to read a couple of verses before that. So we're going to begin in verse 21 of Genesis chapter 2. It says 21 and 22. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So the whole point here is that man and woman are one flesh. She's created out of his rib, right out of his side. They are one body. They are one flesh. And Adam responds and even sings a song. It says, verse 23 and 4, Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The whole passage revolves around being one flesh, two becoming one, one flesh, the rib, one flesh, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Now let's go back to Ephesians. Paul says this, therefore, and then he starts into verse 32 and says, this mystery is profound. This mystery is profound. What mystery? Well, let, let's understand that Genesis passage again that he quotes. When it says, therefore, a man will leave his father and his mother and cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What? Why does it say a man will leave his father and mother and not a woman will leave her father and mother? Why wouldn't it say both? In fact, in Jewish culture, it's a woman who leaves her father and mother and clings to the man. In fact, still to this day, we have this tradition. A woman gives up her maiden name and takes the name of her husband. So it's the woman who leaves her family, in a sense, and clings to the man. So why, if that's Jewish tradition, why would it say a man leaves his father and mother? Doesn't make any sense. And actually, if we go back to Genesis, remember this is Adam singing the song. How's Adam leading his mom and his dad? 
Like we're only in Genesis chapter 2. We haven't gone that far. We, we can understand at this point, he was made from the dust to the ground. He has no earthly mom or dad. So what's it possibly saying that a man will leave his father and mother? This mystery is profound, Paul says. This mystery is profound. But verse 32 continues, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and his church. That the passage in Genesis was not primarily about Adam and Eve. It's not primarily about human beings in the marriage context. That is just a template. It's just a poetic image. What the passage is about and has been from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 2 is Jesus leaving his father to come to this earth to marry his bride and become one flesh, Christ and the church. Christ and the church, which, which, which means at its core that marriage is a template of the gospel. And so we uphold marriage not simply because it's good for us, not simply because it's good for society, not simply because the Bible tells us to. We uphold marriage because it is a template of the gospel, of the gospel. And even those roles, even that mixture of what it is to be a man and what it is to be a woman, these are intertwined not because it's cultural, not because, not because we, we, sh we should do it because it's simply beneficial for us, because it's a part of the gospel. And in a gender-confused world that fights against any type of gender roles, in a world in which marriage is being diminished day by day by day by day, it is not simply the institution of marriage nor of roles that are being destroyed. It is the template of the gospel. The gospel. It is Jesus Christ coming for his church as that is exemplified in what it is for two people to forgive each other and love each other and care for each other. A template of the gospel. So I would suggest that the stakes are high as we walk through this passage. And we're left, we're left with a, a, a question of, okay, Lord, if this is the case, and the gospel is a Marriage is a template of the gospel. Then, then what are you and me to do? How, how do we possibly apply this to our lives? And I want to make a few suggestions. The first is that you and I uphold marriage. This is, there's, there's zero... I, I'm not a guilt person. If you know me very long, fear and guilt I despise. They're the worst motivators this world has ever known, and they're destructive. So, so this has nothing to do with guilt, nor does it have anything to do with looking in anyone's past here, regardless of what it is. If you're the woman from Samaria, and you've had six, five husbands, and you're with a sixth male, and he's not yet your husband, there's zero guilt producing here. But to uphold marriage, to lift it up, because it is a template of the gospel. And that means not only simply upholding the institution of marriage amongst ourselves and our children and our grandchildren and our neighbors and all of those around us. 
This has to do with upholding what it is for two people to love each other and forgive each other. Husbands and wives, when you forgive each other, when you love each other, when you are merciful with each other and kind with each other, it is a template of the gospel. Of the gospel. This is significant stuff. So we not only have to uphold marriage, we have to walk in the calling. I, I have seen, unfortunately, in this world, lots and lots of husbands who flat out fail to even strive to love their wives the way God calls them to. I've seen wives who just flat out fail at loving their husbands the way God calls them to. We have to uphold marriage and we have to uphold the holiness of forgiveness and kindness and love and compassion and, 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 and submission and servanthood of what it is to truly lift up another person. And we have to display that to the ends of the earth. Now, moving past that, I believe we not only have to uphold marriage, but we have to uphold even these roles and gender. And I, I totally get this is tricky. I don't want to pretend that, that I have all the answers. What gender roles look like are, are tough. And what gender roles look like between me and Deborah are different than what it looks like for any other couple in here. We're all different human beings. But there are intrinsically some roles that God has woven into manhood and womanhood. I want to read just two passages. So this deals with man. I'm going to deal with manhood first and then womanhood. Manhood. First uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. What, what, what that means, King James says, dwell with your wives according to knowledge. Live with your wives and know what makes them tick. Know how they feel loved. Have you ever talked love language kind of stuff? Know the love language of your bride. Know their emotional needs. Know their fears. Know the subtleties of how their heart ticks. Husbands, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, to understand them. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. What is a pastor even reading a passage like that for in 2020? I get it. I am not saying that women don't have the endurance as a man. I'm not saying that women do not have the perseverance of a man. I'm not saying that women do not have the intelligence of a man. Please hear me. Women and men created in the image of God equally. Equally gifted, equally valued, equally intelligent. In fact, I, I, I somewhat tease with it, but like if you really press me and you want to pick intelligence, I'll just go to my home because it's the one I know the most. Go with the girls. Just go with the girls. I remember going to a church service that was wildly different than ours when we were kids, and there was a lot of, 
uh, people being slain in the spirit and some different things that my kids had never experienced. And uh, we got in the car and I tried to unpack things. And I said, so, so that was a little different than we're used to. Um, what were you guys thinking? What was worship like for you today? Was it different at all? And my boys were like, oh, no, it's church. <laughs> then my daughter starts pouring into these detailed questions of everything they heard. So I'm not saying the boys are smarter nor better. As a generality, you can say that a, a, a man typically is at least physically stronger. Um, even that you can press. You all could walk out of here and find some female that could beat me in arm wrestling, hands down right now today. I'm sure of it. But it's a generalization. And there is a sense in which, walking in that generalization, men have a, a calling to protect, a calling to look after. And it was not that long ago that... that that, that we as a church would have just known if a boy and a girl are walking down a street together, whether they're five years old, 12 years old, or 25 years old, whether they're brother, sister, whether dating, whether they're friends, whether they're neighbors, if a guy and a girl are walking down a street together, the guy takes the traffic side just to protect in a wedding still to this day. So, so why is it that a groom walks in first, then the wedding party, then then the, then the bride. Why does a man walk in first? It has to do with vulnerability. Whoever walks in first is the vulnerable one. Because if a man walks in and is standing up front and the girl gets cold feet and decides not to come in, then it's the guy who's standing up front, vulnerable. And so a guy would never put a girl in the vulnerable place. That's why a guy comes in first. That's why he says the I do's first. That's why he says the vows first. That's why he gives the rings first. So that if she changes her mind, it will be him who has to bear it, that she would never be put in the vulnerable position. Why? Because there is a tradition. And I, I, we can't dissect everything. And I'm not saying females are weaker people in any sort of gifting way. But guys, there's a calling of manhood to protect and care for. We went caroling as a church uh, just a couple weeks ago, and there's a group of 2025 that, that drove around to a handful of nursing homes and that kind of thing, uh, singing Christmas carols and, and, and trying to be a blessing in places, and it was a great time. And in the midst of our time, there was a, a, a young boy who's 10, 12 years old who a couple of times... Uh, as we were going in or leaving, got to the door first, opened it, and stood there holding the door open. And numerous times I just said, like, attaboy, you don't see it all the time now. And this is nothing like every female in here is capable of opening their own door. I know this. But there's, there's something even in the symbol to say, I'm going to get the door for you because I want to live out a calling to, to protect and look out for and care. We'll, we'll, we'll move past this. So on the female side, Isaiah chapter 49. It's one of my favorite passages in this regard. It's a bit of poetry. We could go to lots of passages on it. It says, can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. And it goes to a simple truth that it is 
ingrained in the DNA of a female to care for, to nurture people. Now, just like you can find a woman who'll beat me in arm wrestling today, we can all go out and find a male who is more nurturing than females. But as a general rule, there is a truth here to walk in, to uphold, because it's part of the template of the gospel that females are more nurturing as a stereotype. In my family, like, this was fairly simple. Um, my son turned 16. It was time to learn how to drive. I said, let's go, son. I'm going to teach you how to drive. We drove out of our neighborhood into another little neighborhood. It's quiet streets. And the streets are lined with rocks, boulders, along the side by people's driveways and stuff. And I knew we were in trouble when we had veered off and we catapulted over one of the boulders and landed on the frame of the car so that the front wheel was just spinning in the air. Evidently, the volume of my voice didn't stop the situation. I had to jack up the car. I had to move the boulder aside. I had to lower the car. I had to tell my son to sit in the passenger seat as I drove home. And I looked at mom and said, you're teaching him how to drive. Because I don't have in my DNA the patience for this sort of thing. Whatever it is, like the nurturing side of me did not come out. There's stereotypes here, but as a general rule, we have to encourage the nurturing side of what it is to be female to come alongside other people and make them feel more important to come alongside other people and make them feel more significant, to come alongside other, other people and, and build them up and inspire and lift them. These roles are not simply for our good. They're not simply for the good of society. I don't want to oversimplify them, but they are a part of the template of the gospel, of what it is for Christ to be the groom and us to be the bride. Now, let me take this to a, a final application point, and that is this. We, as the bride of Christ, need to receive. I, I don't know if you feel cherished today, but I want you to think of Jesus Christ as a groom who is anxious and excited to draw you in as a bride. He adores you. He cherishes you. He, in a sense, almost ooze and awes over you. It's unfathomable. It's unbelievable. But he loves you and me that much. He loves his bride that much. This template of marriage that is the template of the gospel, we have to receive and uphold and we have to step into so that we know just how intimately God loves you, and God loves me. So as we close, we're going to close in worship by coming back before the Lord. We're going to sing a song, Behold Him. It's a song that, that lifts up the glory of Jesus Christ and then has a calling on us to simply be still and behold Him. And as we sing the song, I want you to, to think of the glory of Jesus Christ but I want you to think of the glory of Jesus Christ as a groom who adores you, who loves you, who delights in you. 
And then I want you to behold that and rest and receive His love for you and His love for me. Let's stand as we sing. Thanks for listening to the New Life Bible Fellowship Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person next week. Or check out our live stream at newlifetucson.live. Have a great week.